First Peter chapter 3. If you're here for the first time, we're working our way through the book of First Peter. And you join us at an interesting stage. And we're just going to read First Peter chapter 3 from verse 17 to the end of verse 22. This is uh, God's word to us through the Apostle Peter's writings. Everybody ready? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they, did, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. God's word to us this morning. Now, I read those words. Don't know about you. And my mind immediately goes to that passage in Scripture. It's in 2 Peter 3. So this doesn't really work time-wise, but this is how my mind crazily works. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says, basically, and I paraphrase, our brother Paul, he writes some really difficult things that people can't understand. And sometimes they twist them to mean whatever they want them to mean, uh, and it's to their own downfall. And I read these words of Peter, and I imagine Peter saying, Paul, hold my beer. I'm going to show you how to write difficult passages in Scripture. And we get this. We ain't seen nothing yet. I don't know how Peter can say, Paul writes difficult things, and then Peter writes, boom. Jesus, alive in the Spirit, went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. And he then throws in Noah. And then he says, oh, baptism saves you. Aren't you glad you're not me this morning? Maybe you're not. Maybe... Well, maybe you wish you were me. A lot of people do. (laughs) Anyway, the the brightest theological minds, which is not me, say that this is, without doubt, the most difficult passage in all of the New Testament. All right? Martin Luther, who was the, the monk, the crazy German monk who started the Reformation in the 1500s, said this. This is a wonderful text, but a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. And I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So, hope that fills you with hope this morning. All right. Now, this is hard to understand, and we've got three choices this morning. Either we could just skip over this passage and get to the the gooder stuff after it, assuming that this is crazy and irrelevant to us, and that would be to our detriment. We could twist the passage to mean whatever we wanted, which Peter doesn't encourage us to do, because that only leads to our downfall. 
Or we could believe what Paul writes in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful and profitable to all of us, so that it might build us up and prepare us and equip us for what God has for us. I'm going to take that approach, that third one. So will you pray with me and let's ask for God to help us, because boy, we're going to need it. Lord, we thank you this morning that you are a God who keeps his promises. And we thank you that when we come to you in prayer and humbly ask us to send your Holy Spirit, you tell us he will come to us and make the truth known to us. And he will help us make headway in understanding even difficult things. We believe the promise of your word where you say that this passage is breathed out by you and useful to us. And so we pray that you would help us to receive the encouragement that you intend to impart to us your precious people, through these words. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. All right, so a wise piece of advice that was given to me many years ago is, is this, and it's applicable to any area of life, but certainly the scriptures, is when you are confronted with mystery or something you don't understand, some things that are difficult to, to get your mind around, begin with what you know and then move to what you don't know. So let's begin with what we know, okay? We know that First Peter is a letter that Peter wrote to encourage Christians living on the fringes of the Roman Empire who were being persecuted and uh, suffering, unjust, uh, suffering unjustly for their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's writing to encourage them in the face of the onslaught of that persecution that they are beginning to receive. And so every section of his letter is written towards that goal, to encourage people in their faith as they face persecution. So these verses must contribute towards that overall goal. They must be some kind of, there must be some kind of encouragement and some kind of equipping in these verses that are designed to help Christians endure suffering rather than just bamboozle us with mystery. So we mustn't let the confusing and the controversial things distract us from what is clear and compelling. Now, the next thing that you do when you're confronted with something you don't know is to read it in the context. That means to read immediately before and immediately after what Peter has written. So to catch what verses 18 to 22 mean, we have to look at verse 17, which we read, which was Peter calling Christians to suffer if it was God's will for them. Because it was better to suffer for doing good, if that's God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Now, suffering for doing good is difficult to hear. That's a hard thing to hear. You've got your call to suffer even though you are following Jesus. So we need something to help us to endure that. Then if you flip down to verse 1 of chapter 4, he, he writes, well, let, actually look at verse 18 first. It begins with for Christ. Now that word for is a connecting word. It means that Peter is trying to connect verses 17 to 18 to 22. And in saying for or because... He's basically beginning to explain why it is better to suffer for doing good. Then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he begins, Therefore, which is a word that indicates purpose. Therefore, in light of all that I've said, here's the implication. Here's the purpose. Here is the outcome. And then he begins to tell us the outcome of what it means to suffer for righteousness sake, just as Jesus did. So, 
even though our passage contains some puzzling things that are difficult to decipher, Peter's overall message is not difficult because immediately before and after, he tells us to prepare for suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about suffering in general. He's talking about being persecuted for faith in Jesus Christ and for the sake of God's kingdom. And he's going to then use these verses to encourage us. Now, the obvious question is, how the heck do these verses strengthen us to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow him? Well, I tried to come up with a sentence that you can take away with you, write down, that that encapsulates the meaning of this passage. It hopefully should come up on the screen where it says this. The Christian's assurance and hope in times of suffering come from seeing Christ's glorious triumph over all evil. Okay? So our hope, our assurance as Christians, when we are faced with persecution and unjust suffering for following Jesus Christ, is to see that he is victorious over all evil. And Peter has five ways, five things for us to see that will help us in suffering to endure. The first one is this. Remember that Jesus himself suffered. Remember that Jesus himself suffered. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that's God's will, uh, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. The first thing he tells us is that Christ, our great king, our savior, suffered just like us. And throughout the New Testament, the the mindset of New Testament Christianity is that Jesus suffered as the head and the body will follow him into suffering. You see that again. You see it in Philippians 3 verse 10 where Paul says, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Or Hebrews 13 verses 12 and 13 where the writer to the Hebrew says, Jesus also suffered outside of the gate, outside of the city, in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go with him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Or in Mark 8, 34, the familiar words of Jesus, where Jesus said, if anybody would come after me, i.e. if anybody would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. So the first and the the greatest encouragement for Christians facing persecution is to remember that Christ suffered for doing what is right. That suffering, unjust suffering, was what Jesus experienced. And he was the greatest, most loving, most caring, most truthful, most holy man who has ever lived And he suffered for us. He suffered for us. Edmund Clowney in his commentary says this. Our willingness to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sake. So he wants us to see, uh, to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. The way that we are firstly encouraged and equipped to endure unjust suffering and persecution is to survey the wondrous cross. 
to see that Christ suffered for us, to marvel at that, that he would leave heaven and be persecuted unto death on a cross for us. It's a reminder that he's gone before us, that he never asks us to walk a path that he hasn't walked himself. It's a reminder that he suffers with us in our suffering, so we don't face it alone. He suffered even unto death, and he did it willingly. And therefore, we can follow him because he knows. He can sympathize. He did it for us. But it wasn't just a path to suffering that Christ was on. It was a path, and we'll get to this in the, at the end, of vindication and of victory and of glory. And so our suffering doesn't terminate in suffering. It, too, continues on the path of vindication and victory and glory. So we remember that Christ suffered. The second thing that Peter wants us to arm ourselves with is to remember how Christ has triumphed. So not only to remember that he has suffered, but to remember that he has triumphed. Now, do you remember in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus... uh, begins to tell his disciples that the Son of Man will be persecuted and he will be suffer many things and he'll be rejected by the elders and he will be rejected by the chief priests and he'll be rejected by the scribes and then he'll be killed and then on the third day he will rise again. And what does Peter do at those words of Jesus? He takes Jesus aside and he says, Jesus, you got it wrong. This ain't going to happen. Because to Peter and to Jews in general, the idea of a suffering Messiah was just an oxymoron. It was, it was horrific. It was, it was crazy to them. So he says, no, 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 Jesus, you're not going to die and, be, and have all that terrible stuff happen to you. No, 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 no. And what does Jesus do? He takes Peter aside and he says, get behind me, Satan. These are the words of Satan that you're speaking. This isn't God's plan. This isn't God's will. No, this is, God's will is that I suffer and die and rise again. And he tells him, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're just setting your mind on the things of man. But here we find that Peter, the penny dropped. He understood that a suffering Messiah is the Messiah that God intended. And so he summarizes in one of the most incredibly short and yet succinct and rich sentences in all of the New Testament, how Christ has triumphed. Read with me again, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the spirit, but but made alive in or by the spirit. Five things he wants us to notice about how Jesus has triumphed. Firstly, he's, he's triumphed over sins. Jesus died for sins. Now, perhaps you've had this thought among you at some point. Why would anybody want to become a Christian if what the New Testament promises them is a life of difficulty and persecution and trial? That doesn't make sense. Why would you accept that? Why would you take that on board if that is the overwhelming promise of the New Testament? That you might risk your life in following Jesus. Why would you do that? Well, because our greatest need is not to live long on this earth and to be comfortable. Our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven and to, have the, to overcome the separation between God and man that we experience. And for us to find that forgiveness and to find uh, that, that bridge 
to, to cross the separation and live happily with God in his presence forever rather than suffering the misery of hell paying for our sins ourselves. And so the, the suffering and the misery of hell and the wrath of God for our sins that aren't forgiven is, is vastly more terrifying than suffering for righteousness' sake. But the good news is we don't have to suffer for sins because Christ died for sins so that you and I don't ever have to. Christ died for sins so that you and I never have to die to pay for our own sins ourselves. That there is forgiveness with God. That's why people put their faith in Christ. Even though they might lose their life. Because as Jesus says in Mark 8. Whoever loses his life for my sake. Will find that he actually gains it all. Because there is forgiveness. Of every sin. Every time you sin. For every person who does sin. And trust Christ to be their saviour. But then Christ not only died for sins, he died once, uh, sorry, he died the righteous for the unrighteous. Did you notice that as well? That Jesus' death is substitutionary. He takes our place. And it was a death that was utterly undeserved because he was utterly innocent. Jesus was the sinless one. He was righteous with a kind of a capital R. And his perfect obedience is the only basis that he can die for us. Because if he had his own sins to pay for, he couldn't pay for yours or mine. But because he didn't have his own sins to pay for, because he was righteous, he could die for the unrighteous. He could stand in our place and take the wrath of God on his shoulders and pay the penalty that we deserved. Because he was righteous. Then he died once for sins, for all, if it says, that Jesus' death is the final and all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. It was sufficient for all who believe in him, and it's sufficient for all time. That means he never has to make a sacrifice again. His death was enough. That's why at the cross in John 19, he cries, it is finished. Because everything that was necessary to save you and me from our sins and rescue us from hell, Jesus did so that we don't have to. And then, most gloriously perhaps, he did all this to bring us to God. Did you see that? All of this, his death for sins, his dying the righteous for the unrighteous, once for all, is designed that he might bring us to God. That the separation and, uh, that we experience from God because of the barrier of our sin gets crossed. And we're brought to God. So this is the great comfort for Christians in suffering. Christ has brought us to God. And he's nestled us under his arm. As a refuge and a hiding place. He's brought us to God. God is near us. God is for us. All of our lives are hidden with him. And he's made sure that we will be safe with him forever. He's brought us to God. Think about this. Like uh, One of the greatest temptations and, the, and lies that Satan sows into our minds when we suffer is this. God's left you. God's abandoned you. God's forsaken you, isn't that? So we face something and what's our immediate? Where's God? He's gone. Where is he? Why am I having to face this? 
And yet here, Peter wants us to remember that suffering is not in any way, shape, or form a sign that God has forsaken us or turned against us because Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, once for all to bring us to God. And all that means that if God has paid for our sins and absorbed God's wrath and brought us to God, he is never, ever going to turn away from us. He's got us. And then finally, the, the kind of fifth part is that he is made alive in or by the Spirit. That even though Jesus suffered and died in his body, the Spirit has raised him up to new life. So the pathway of Jesus' suffering was not to the cross, it was through the cross. Do you understand the difference? It didn't culminate in his death. It was his death that he was then raised to life. It was through the cross that he was victorious. Suffering and death for Christ and for Christians does not have the last word. Jesus does because he's alive, conquering sin and death. And he was raised to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading resurrection body and resurrection life. And all those who are united to him in faith will get that too one day. That we'll get a resurrection body. Oh yeah, we'll suffer I don't say that glibly, but we will. Oh, yes, we'll die. But just like Jesus, we will rise again to a resurrection body and a life that we cannot dream of. So Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good. It's better to be on Jesus' side and suffer than it is to be against him. So he wants us to remember that Christ has triumphed. Jesus is on the winner. He is the winner. The winner. He is the champion. And if we're on his team, if God is for us, who can be against us? So Peter wants us to take heart because God is at work in our suffering, sustaining us, keeping us, helping us, drawing us to himself. And one day he will vindicate us. And lead us into glory evermore. All because of Christ. So there's two things there. Remember Christ suffered. Remember Christ has triumphed. Then thirdly, remember the days of Noah. Now this is where it gets interesting. Because we read in verses 19 and 20. He's made alive in the spirit. And then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight persons. Were brought safely through water. And your mind should be going. What? Who? What? Where? Who are the spirits in prison? When did Jesus do this? And what did he say? And when did this happen? And why did this happen? And where does Noah fit into all of this? And why does he get? Why does he mangle this together with baptism? I don't know. And neither do I, but there is one, and that's Tom Schreiner, and he wrote this fantastic commentary. He's one of the foremost New Testament scholars of our day, and if Martin Luther was around, uh, he would say, there has been no one to understand it, except Tom Schreiner. Uh, and he doesn't stand alone, actually. The, the majority view of all of the commentaries and the scholars seems to take the view uh, that I'm just about to share with you. Now, I didn't come up with this myself. I'm repeating this, but this is uh, the best understanding. Apart from the day when you get to heaven and you say, Peter, what were you thinking? And he tells you, this is the best explanation I can find. So track with me here. 
Don't want to get bogged down with it, but track with me. In verse 18 at the end, he says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit, that Jesus has triumphed to a resurrection life, that he has passed from one sphere of existence. That was his, his uh, hu- with all of the limitations of being a human. And now he's in his resurrected state and his resurrected body that does not come with all of those limitations. And so Peter says, in that resurrected body, he goes... And proclaims to the spirits that are in prison. And then he throws Noah into, the, into it. And it would appear that this is connected to something that happens in Genesis chapter 6. In the days of Noah. Okay, now in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and you can read them at, at, in your own leisure. Uh, there are sons of God who are believed to be angels who come down from heaven in disobedience to God, and they unite themselves in sexual relationships and marriage to, uh, to women, to, to human women. And God does not look on this favorably, and these uh, disobedient angels, these disobedient spirits were imprisoned by God because of their rebellion against him. You can read about that in Jude 6. And in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. So there's other biblical warrant for that. And so it is thought that in his resurrected state, perhaps in his ascension at some point, when Jesus rose from the dead, he went to this prison, wherever it might be, where these fallen angels are being held. And they might represent all fallen angels. We don't know. But he went to this prison and proclaimed his victory over sin and death and Satan and hell and all evil. And that because he was victorious, they were doomed to an inevitable destruction. That's what they think Peter means. Now, you might sit there and go, well, that's all nice. But how is that supposed to encourage us in suffering? Well, let me, think, let me lead you into some more thoughts. In the days of Noah, they were strikingly similar to the days that the original readers were facing. And they were days that are strikingly similar to that which we are increasingly facing in the 21st century. Because like Noah, the original readers and us here today are a small minority of believers, aren't we? So the percentage of Christians in the United Kingdom is, what, about 4% at best. We're an extremely small minority. And we are trusting God and trying to follow Jesus despite evil forces and a hostile world outside those doors who are always constantly pushing us towards sin and idolatry and wickedness. And the days of Noah were strikingly similar to the original readers and to us because The message that Noah was proclaiming and the message that the original readers were proclaiming and the message of the gospel that we proclaim is very odd to the world's ears. Think about this. Think about when you think about the gospel. It's crazy, really. A Jewish carpenter is executed as a criminal on a Roman cross and he's risen from the dead and now he's in heaven. And if you say you believe in him, you'll live with him for eternity. That sounds as nuts as Noah saying, I'm going to build a big boat in the middle of the desert where there isn't much rain 
And there ain't no water because God is going to send a flood to conquer all the wickedness and sin of the world. And what did the people around Noah in Noah's day do to him? They went, you're nuts. And what did the people in the Roman Empire say to these Christians because of their faith in Jesus Christ? You're nuts. And what does the person who lives next door to you or works in your office or meets you at the school gate think of you because you're a Christian? You're nuts. So this helps us because to draw attention to Noah and his experience and his example, Peter is intending to strengthen us because just as God rescued Noah from the massive onslaught of wickedness, just as God rescued Noah from the flood of God's judgment, so God will rescue Peter's original readers from the massive flood of wickedness in their world and from the flood of God's judgment against that sin. And if he will do that to Noah and he will do that to them, then surely he will protect and save us too. That's the encouragement in the face of suffering. It can feel foolish to be a small minority who trust the word of God. But Peter tells us, a few. It was eight people in Noah's day. We don't know how big the church was in Peter's day. But hey, we're a few. Not many more than a hundred or so. But if God saves a few in Noah's day, and he saved a few in Peter's day, Surely he will save the few of us in our day. So we're to remember the days of Noah. Because there is a day coming when the minority will turn the tables on the majority. And as Peter's already told us, there will be a day where those who are against us will be ashamed. For they will see Christ as he truly is. Then the fourth thing he wants us to remember is remember the meaning of baptism. And here the difficulties continue because Peter wants us to be strengthened in suffering by reminding us of the meaning of baptism. Now, somehow the floodwaters of Noah's day remind Peter of baptism. He says the baptism corresponds to Noah's ark and Noah's flood. And so we say, well, how does it correspond? Well, Let's try and understand this because he goes on to say that, you know, baptism corresponds to Noah's day and it's baptism that saves you. So what do we make of this? Well, he's already told us in verse 18 that it's Christ who suffered for sins and it's Christ who died for the righteous for the unrighteous. And it's Christ who died once for all and it's Christ who's brought us to God. So therefore, it can't be baptism that saves or other, otherwise Peter is some kind of schizophrenic preacher. From verse 18, he forget, from verse 21, he forgets what he wrote to sentences before. Well, we can't believe that. So baptism that saves you must mean something in light of the fact that he's already told us that it's Christ who saves us. So what does he mean? Well, the, the best understanding that I can give you is this, that he here is trying to give us a definition of what baptism is. And it's slightly different to Paul's definition of baptism in Romans 6, but they go hand in hand together. Because they both teach us that baptism is an outward expression of a spiritual inward reality. 
Both believe that. Both teach that. But here, he tells us that baptism, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you. Not by washing your body clean, because we don't believe that that's what happens. The water doesn't have any magical power to make you a Christian. So it's not baptismal regeneration. But it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So in other words, in Peter's mind, baptism is a way of saying, I trust in you, Jesus, and your death and resurrection for my sins, that you will bring me through death and judgment into life evermore with you. It's an appeal. It's saying, I stand here today and I put my faith, I'm publicly demonstrating my faith, I'm appealing to you that your son's death and resurrection on my behalf is now mine. For a good conscience, for a clean conscience, for salvation. So it's a, in that way, baptism saves because it's a, it's a outward sign of an internal reality. Make sense? I hope that does. If you don't understand it, borrow Schreiner for the afternoon. He'll tell you. But it's an appeal of faith. So Paul writes in Romans 10, 13, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Baptism is a symbol and a sign of us calling on the name of the Lord. It's an appeal to him to save us. Well, this, of course, strengthens us for suffering because remembering baptism means that we call to mind that Christ has died in our place, that we have passed through judgment and death, that we've been buried with him and raised to new life in him. And therefore, any kind of suffering that we face is not God's judgment on us. It's not God's condemnation of us. It's not his um, punishing us because Christ has already experienced that. He's died and we've raised, been raised to new life so that the worst that can be thrown at us now by the world around us under God's sovereignty is God's fatherly care and discipline for those he loves and for the preparation that we face. There is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ for those who have been saved and we know we've been saved because we have declared it through baptism. Therefore, in the face of suffering, we have certainty of hope of our salvation because we can say there is a point in time where I've confessed my sins And professed my faith in God. And I am saved. So he wants us to remember baptism. And then finally he wants us to remember where Jesus is now. The last way he strengthens us for suffering. Is a reminder that Jesus has gone into heaven. And is at the right hand of God. Verse 22. With all angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Peter wants to get our gaze off ourselves. And he wants to lift our hearts to behold the glory of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. Who is now in the glory of heaven at the right hand of God who sits on the throne. And Christ is ruling and reigning over all. What an encouragement to the few of us. What an encouragement to the few in Peter's day. Christ 
has triumphed over yours and our sins. He's paid our debt in full. Christ has triumphed over the power of death and been raised to new life. And so will we. Christ has gone to the spirits in prison and declared, I am victorious over all my enemies. And Christ now triumphantly reigns in heaven. And all angels and all authorities and all powers, everything... That stands against him will be and has been subjected to him. Everything's been put under his feet as his footstool. What a difference that should make. What a difference. If you think about how this finishes off the section that began in verse uh, in, in chapter 3 where Paul calls us, uh, sorry, Peter calls us, be subject to governments and civil authorities. And be subject to masters and employers. And be subject to husbands. Be subject, be subject, be subject. And now he says, everything is subjected to Christ. So he says, no matter what you face, unjust civil authorities, unjust masters, unjust unbelieving husbands, God has subjected everything to Christ. All angels, all authorities, all powers, all demons, everything is subjected to Christ. And he's ruling and he's reigning over everything. That means when we face suffering for doing good, there is no harassment, no oppression, no deceiving, no accusations that humans or demons can bring to us that will stand against us. That are outside of God's plan for us. Everything that threatens us. Everything that maligns us. Everything that mocks us. Everything that persecutes us. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Is subjected to him. He rules. He reigns. He is victorious. Nothing happens to us without his permission. Evil forces and evil people may try and do their worst against us, but Jesus is victorious. And he has not and he will never ever surrender or forsake his people into evil forces or to evil people, even if we suffer death. Because what does he say? Even if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, you will find it and keep it and save it. You might die, but united to Jesus, we rise again in triumph. So Peter says, stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your hope. Arm yourself with these things to remember. Remember that Christ suffered. Remember that Christ triumphed. Remember the days of Noah. Remember the meaning of baptism. And remember where Jesus is now. Because he has the last word. So follow him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning. That we have such a hope in Jesus Christ. We thank you that in the face of hostility and growing persecution and difficulties that Christians face. As we are a small minority, a few in our nation. That we have the whole massive, magnificent glory of Jesus Christ as our refuge and strength. Help us to remember and not to throw away our confidence, but to trust him for before 
the throne of God above, we have a strong and a mighty plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name.